Austin Charlie. <laughs> you know, in spite of the fact that uh, here we are in the Yuletide season and there's nothing but goodwill and uh, <laughs> humanity of one man to the other flowing like a deep, rich river of uh, used molasses down the street, I see this terrible piece of graffiti down on the 23rd Street IRT. Says Frodo buys beer in deposit bottles and then throws them away. <laughs> Terrible, I'm sorry. <laughs> Deck the halls with Boston Charlie. Howard is something on the street car. La Tariti. Yeah, you know, in spite of the fact that here we are, we're in the middle of the brotherly love season here. In, uh, you know, in our time, you just see terrible inhumanities popping up every place. For example, I just got a little news note from Houston. And a lady, somebody stole her philodendron. I mean, you know, philodendron. Stole her philodendron. And two days later, in fact, just before Christmas, two days later, she gets a note in the mail and said, if you ever want to see your plant alive again... Mail ten dollars to this post office box. <laughs> you realize that's a new <laughs> stealing bit. Guys, that's not really kidnapping. What would that be called? I mean, you can't say plant napping. What would it be called? Yeah, I suppose it would be plant napping. But that's that's a that's a type of cruelty that is just unimaginable. In fact, uh, I heard I heard terrible cruelty. I heard over in Jersey. I heard. Uh, uh, a case of a guinea pig kidnap. Uh, yes, a guinea pig. Named, uh, matter of fact, the guinea pig's name was Ralph. Was an Abyssinian type guinea pig. You know that's the that's the bow legged type, the ones with the crooked teeth. You've seen the Abyssinian type, and they just uh, snatched it right off the porch, and it was gone. And a couple of days later, they were given a note. You know, if they've returned twenty five dollars, you'll never see Ralph alive again. Well, of course, uh, it did get you backfired because they've been trying to get rid of Ralph for years. And <laughs> they were delighted. They not only didn't send the $25, they didn't even bother to answer the letter. So now, but, I'm, you know, I imagine there's been cases before when people got kidnapped and everybody around were really basically pleased that he was snatched, you know, picked up. Hello, Bill. Goodbye, Herb. Everything's working fine there. We're changing the guards here. And uh, so here it is, in the middle of uh, Yuletide season, and, uh, you know, I'm constantly getting uh, getting accosted with reality. Like uh, the other day, I was sitting down there just at uh, Christmas time. I'm up to my knees in wrapping paper and stuff, you know, all that goody stuff. And uh, somebody sends me a, right in the middle of all the Christmas cards, I, I open up this uh, letter from some PR company, Bill, and uh, they were announcing that uh, their client announces a new method of developing fuel oil out of dog waste, is the way they put it, euphemistically. Now, that came in at Christmas. Now, why did they have to send it to me right there in the middle of all these Christmas cards? And I'm sitting there, and the little elves, you know, the little cardboard elves and the Snoopies are tumbling out of the pages. And then I get this, making fuel oil out of dog waste. So uh, we're moving forward. That's, that's the trouble with life. It's always a mixture of good and bad, a mixture of the sublime and the ridiculous, the poetic and the mundane. Would you please give me a little uh, poetic music, please, there? Thank you. 
That's nice. And so today, immediately following the traumatic experience of Christmas, we would like to salute that mixture of the poetic and the mundane, which is, of course, the lot of man on this earth. la da This is something rarely discussed. Uh, we either discuss one or the other in, in, uh, in public discussion. Either people are discussing constantly the rotten stuff, endlessly. You'll hear that on any show, constantly discussing what's wrong. On the other hand, they continually discuss the beautiful stuff. Hardly ever discussed, is, is it ever pointed out, that life is a mixture constantly, ever-changing, ever-recharging its batteries of the poetic and the mundane. You can tell that by just reading any given memo here at the station. I mean, any given memo. Yeah. Well, in fact, I, I know one office party here in town, a Christmas office party, where everybody was invited and uh, charged $10 a head. Underneath it, it said, deck the halls with Ollie. And, and all they served them was uh, tongue sandwiches and, and uh, liver sausage. So the uh, company made a little little extra there on the Christmas party. You know, a couple of bucks. <laughs> so where the hell are you going to go? Hold it there, please, if you will. Uh, let's, uh, speaking of the uh, mundane, uh, there, that there goes that home. There, it's okay now. Speaking of the mundane, uh, and it's Christmas you know, you know, you know that they find that that, that this time of the year, that the psychological problems increase fantastically during the period between Christmas and New Year's. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. This is the time when people really climb the tree, and uh, and they, there's a lot of theories about this, and nobody's quite pinpointed it. However, uh, there are many uh, reasons that uh, I can think of offhand. But uh, yeah, like for example, did you see the? All the uh, TV commercials uh, that have been recently flooding the air for a gift of one kind or another. Uh, there it shows one guy getting a... There's one commercial that's about gifts, in fact. You see the guy opening his harp? And he looks... <laughs> yeah, there's a guy sitting there. Jeez, that really creative idea. And he's got this giant harp. You can see, you know... Another guy opens something up and he looks inside the box and he closes his fast. Yeah, it's really nice. <laughs> he closed it. You don't know what it is. Uh, yeah? Yeah, really? <laughs> well, oh, no, no. I can't discuss that on the air. Uh, would you please... Let's take the average caveman at home listening to his stereo. Jimmy Cassidy. After you graduate from the Air Force's Officer Training School as a second lieutenant, all you need to earn your wings is a real love for flying. The Air Force provides the rest. And once you find yourself as an Air Force pilot, you'll know you have the best job in the world, a job with status as well as security. Yes, it's a fact. As an Air Force pilot, once you've made it, you've got it made, baby. So if you're interested, come here. Come here. You know, what am I going to do here? I'm trapped. Uh, by the way, uh, we have another little thing here. This is just a... That's all. Only two commercials today. So, uh, be calm. When Detroit chooses a new tire for their cars, what do they choose? I mean, you, you know, 
nice big round ones, right? They smell good and everything. They look for, uh, you know, durability, dependability, and, uh, and this is underlined, competitive prices. <laughs> well, we can learn a lesson from those, you know, the smart guys in Detroit. You know what kind of original equipment you get on your car, right? Yeah, that's right. I would like to suggest that you go down to see your beautiful dual steel radio general tire available at your local general tire headquarters. This is original equipment on many cars. And in Plainfield, ask for Pepe Vasta at General Tire Service, 815 West Front Street. I did not invent the name. That is Pepe Vasta. Pepe Vasta. Mm -hmm. Sounds like one of those terrible wine mixtures that they make in Portugal. Pepe Vasta. It's Pepe Vasta season. Made with the general... Uh, Hey, listen, speaking of uh, the the mundane, uh, I... I, uh, I must admit that one of the things that I enjoy getting for Christmas are books, really. And uh, a friend of mine put together a book. I'm going to read some, because I'm sure that uh, that you won't ever get a chance to see this much. It's one of those esoteric things. But a buddy of mine is an anthologist. They, you know, it isn't everybody that has a friend who's an anthologist. I imagine a few of you have friends that are anthropologists. But he's an anthologist. He just, you know, collects poetry, puts it together, and... He's got about 50 different volumes, and they're good. And uh, here is a is a, an anthology of poetry that is on nothing but food. Poetry about food and drink. I mean, the real stuff. And I mean, talking, it ranges all the way from classical stuff to, you know. And uh, it's called And Be Merry. You know, dot, 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 and be merry. A feast of light verse and a soup sound of prose about the joy of eating, assembled by William Cole, who is my friend. And uh, he, you know, I, I, uh, I've often thought that this is this is the kind of poetry that people, because you see, poetry that is is always about just eternal beauty, sometimes loses you a little bit when you're living in the middle of New York City, right? You don't see much of it. And uh, here's 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 poetry about food. For example, would you give me a little of this uh, elegant uh, music behind me there? Here is a here's a poem about Shad. About Shad. You know, you never think a guy writing a poem about Shad. He says, I'm sure that Europe never had a fish as tasty as the Shad. Some people greet the Shad with groans, complaining of its countless bones. I claim the bones teach table poise and separate the men from boys. The shad must be dissected, subtle be. Besides, the row is boneless, utterly. Utterly. That's Ogden Nash, by the way. Nash wrote a lot about uh, about food. Did you know that? Well, you know his famous poem, don't you? Candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. That's his most famous one. <laughs> well, I mean, you know... Uh, that uh, incidentally, that poem was actually about seduction, not about food. <laughs> here's here's another Ogden Nash about food. Ah, uh, there is something about a martini, a tingle remarkably pleasant, a silver, a mellow martini. I wish that I had one at present. There's something about a martini. Ere the dining and dancing begin, and to tell you the truth, it is not the vermouth. I think it perhaps is the gin. Yes, there's something about an old-fashioned that kindles a cardiac glow. It is soothing. 
and soft and impassioned as a lyric by Swinburne or Poe. There's something about an old-fashioned when dusk has enveloped the eye, the sky, I'm sorry, and it may be the ice or the pineapple slice, but I strongly suspect it's the rye. There is something about a mint julep. It is nectar imbibed in a dream, as fresh as the bud of the tulip, as cool as the bed of the stream. There is something about a mint julep, a fragrance beloved by the lucky, and perhaps it's the tint of the frost and the mint, but I think it was born in Kentucky. Do I have to tell you what comes from Kentucky? It ain't mint. <laughs> All right. There is something they put in a highball that awakens the torpidest brain that kindles a spark in the eyeball, gliding, singing through the vein after vein. There is something they put in a highball, which you'll notice one day if you watch. It may be the soda, but judged by the odor, I rather suspect it's the scotch. Yes, there's... Here is to the heartening wassail. Wherever good fellows are found, be it master instead of its vassal, and order the glasses around. For there's something they put in the wassail that prevents it from tasting like wicker, since it's not tapioca or mustard or mocha. I'm totally forced to conclude it's the liquor. Please. Thank you. All right, uh, hold that back there. This is no, 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 keep there. This is W O R friends in New York, of course. You want to hear some more poems about food? Let's see. Let's see. There's some goodies in here. Some of them I can't read on the air, actually. Believe it or not, about food. Here's a great. Uh, Wait a minute here. No, I don't want to read that one. Here's a poem about Bushmills Irish whiskey. Did you you know they they write a poem about says last evening you were drinking deep, so now your head aches. Go to sleep. Take some boiled cabbage when you wake, and there's an end of your headache. Seventeenth century. That's a seventeenth century verse about a headache, about a hangover. Do you ever think of boiled cabbage for a hangover? No. Let's see. Here's some. Um, gee, there's some fantastic stuff in here. I mean, uh, you, you can't imagine Jonathan Swift writing a poem. Well, listen to this one now. Here's a poem about breakfast. It's called First Thing. In fact, there's an entire section about breakfast, poems about breakfast. Oh, this is beautiful. It's called At Breakfast. Not quite spherical, quite oddly closed and without a lid. A smooth miracle here in my hand. As it slid from my sleeve, the shape of this box heals me oval. Heels feel its bottom. Nape knocks its top. Seated like a fetus, I look for the dream scene. What's inside? A sun? Off with its head, though it hasn't any. Or is it all head, no body? One. Neatly, the night scalps it. I scoop out the brain cap, soft, sweetly shuddering moon cream. This could be spoons, laps the larger, crescent, loosens a gilded nucleus from warm pap, a lyrical food, opened a seamless miracle, ate a sun germ, good. It's a poem to eggs. 
Now, that's a real poem, too. I mean, they're not messing around. Who wrote it? Well, it was written by May Swenson. Look for this one. All right. Uh, uh, a poet at the breakfast table. You want to hear how a poet sits at the breakfast table? In rose-lit air and light perfume, the well-appointed breakfast room delights us as we tread the stair. The loaves are beautiful and fair, as Wordsworth puts it, crust and crumb. The coffee hath an odor rare, but most I love the sticky stare of pickled mackerel, grand and dumb, in rows. And while these dainties we consume, let educated youth prepare, flushed with new science like a bloom, in our rapt hearing to declare how many little eggs there are in rows. That's Rose, R-O-E-S. I have to tell you, poems, poets have a tendency to pun. Now, how about this one? Wonton soup. Have you ever had wonton soup? Sure, of course you have. Yes, the soup contains something from each moment of your life. It is hot and sour. There are islands of chives floating like green ideas in the mind. There is the wonton, folded like an embryo, skimming the water, waiting to be born. There are the small, unkosher bits of pork, forbidden foods, which promise all the flavor. There are the crystal noodles, threads of silver light. You eat your life out of a skull-shaped bowl. You eat it with a porcelain spoon. It is dense as water. It is sour as death. It is hot as an adulterous love. And the pork, forbidden both by Moses and Mohammed, is pink and sweet. That's a beautiful little one. That's called wonton soup. Yes, of all the things I ever swallow, good, well-dressed turtle beats them hollow. It almost makes me wish I vow to have two stomachs like a cow. It's Thomas Hood. Here's one from Thomas Fuller from a very ancient book called Worthies of England. A little line called True Grit. He was a very valiant man who first adventured on eating of oysters. <laughs> Must have taken guts to be the first guy to eat an oyster at that, come to think of it. Of course, the first guy that ate oysters was obviously almost... Because you know that one of the very, very first things that the, that the ancient man ate, I'm talking about really prehistoric man, with shellfish. They find thousands and thousands of shellfish remains, shells, wherever ancient man lived. So to him, it might have been the reverse. It took a lot of guts to eat a, you know, to eat a, uh, a hamburger. You know, that would look evil to him. Ah, the clam. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a couple of pretty good clam poems. Yes. Wait a minute. Hold it there. Hold it there. Hold it there. Let's see. Let's see. The fact is, I simply adore fish, but I don't know a perch from a pike. And I can't tell a cray from a crawfish. They look and taste so alike. End of poem. Here's one. Uh... Yeah, here's a goodie. Mm. The voice of the lobster. You know, it's, 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 it is true, though, come to think of it. That that when you when you stop it really consider it, poetry should is classically written about the passions that you find in your mind. You know the things which you which uh, you can't put in any other way. Uh, 
And eating has a certain poetry to it. Now, we're not talking... There's a big difference, though, between a gourmet and a gourmand. A gourmand is a guy that buys them by the sack. Uh, <laughs> you know, he doesn't care. <laughs> All right, what, what slogan is that? Buy them by the sack. Come on. Well, whose slogan is that? Buy them by the sack. That's right. White Castle. Buy them by the sack. Now, that gets right down. That's, that's eating. You see, that's not the same as dining. That's a subtle, <laughs> it's a subtle difference. You know, it's just stuffing it in. Uh, talking about the clams, uh... Here's a here's a poem. Now I'm I'm just sitting here reading this thing, you know, looking it over, and uh, there's some great curious stuff been written about food. You know that that you take any one of the of the of the seven deadly sins, you know, the classical set seven deadly sins. Can you name them? I mean, you know, greed, lust, all the other goodies, uh, envy, avarice. Uh, each one is <laughs> is based uh, is based on a on a on a specific emotion, and and one of the seven deadly sins, of course, is gluttony, which is basically an emotion. It's a, it's the thing you feel. Uh, it's a, it's the thing that uh, that yeah. It's 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 not it's it's not anything that's been really put into words too much. And you know they they don't have laws about gluttony. Uh, although I, I <laughs> can you imagine a guy getting? Yeah, I, I, I think in some societies they probably would. In fact, uh, in the very early days of, of the Puritan movement, any any sense of, uh, of 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 enjoyment of anything, enjoyment was in itself considered kind of a sin. Uh, to enjoy something, uh, and, it, and it ranged all the way from uh, from sex to eating, you name it. It was all functional. If you had children, it was because you had to populate the nation. And, uh, you know, there was no such thing as swinging. <laughs> you know, that's true. This is the basis of the Puritan, the Puritan ethic. And so that's why, as it's been said, that's why so much of the food that came out of the Puritan movement, you might say England, for example, was, was the basis of the Puritan movement, came out of, the, out of many of the English uh, religious movements of the time, the food was painfully plain. In other words, the idea of sitting down and just scoffing because you're digging it and, and enjoying the food was considered immoral. So the food itself had to be very basically uh, functional. And they ate stuff like squash. Uh, very, very straight stuff. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm, I'm looking through here. There was a great poem here about squash. Uh, <laughs> In fact, one line hits me from the poem. He said, "He said the the first time I ever saw a uh, what was the what was the vegetable? Uh, oh, the first time I ever saw a uh, zucchini, I killed it with a hoe. <laughs> you ever seen one? I'm not talking about canned zucchini. I'm talking about zucchini zucchini. Yeah, have you ever seen one? Well, you would." Heaven's sakes, you know, there's nothing like... And, and uh, the zucchini does look like sort of a little truncated green animal. Yeah, and they, they're skinny and long, and they look like you should kill it with a hoe. And uh, that's what he did. He says, if you notice, the same guy writing... If I can find it, I, I, 
Uh, the one one bad thing about this book, and I have no idea why they didn't do it, they have no uh, no uh, index in it. There's no way for you to find out where anything is. There's no index at all, which is kind of sad. Uh, although, uh, I suppose I do have a kind of an... Here, now here, for example, uh, under Part 4, Soup and Sea. Let's see where Part 4, Soup and Sea is. Yeah, there's a friend of mine wrote the thing in there. Part four, soup and sea. The parsnip, children, I repeat, is simply an anemic beet. Some people call this, call the parsnip edible. Myself, I find this claim incredible. That's Ogden Nash. Garlic's taste is briefest pleasure. Eat in haste. Repent at leisure. Garlic's like the poor, like sorrow. Here today and here tomorrow. Okay? Come. It, it, <laughs> you know that uh, speaking of uh, of onions and that, if you like onions, now people either hate them or love them. Onions and garlic are, are very, very much that way. In other words, uh, people simply do not. There's no, there's no in-between about garlic. You either dig it or you don't. True of onions. But uh, Jonathan Swift, who wrote... Uh, uh, Gulliver's Travels, uh, he's a famous uh, iconoclast, angry man, wrote a, a poem to onions. And uh, he says, Come, follow me by the smell. Here's delicate onions to sell. I promise to use you well. They make the blood warmer. You'll feed like a farmer, for this is every cook's opinion. No savory dish without an onion, but lest your kissing should be spoiled, your onions must be thoroughly boiled, or else you may spare your mistress a share. The secret will never be known. She cannot discover the breath of her lover, but think it's as sweet as her own. Ah, onions. <laughs> That's uh, Jonathan Swift. You never would... Uh, you know, the idea of Swift writing about love in itself... I met a man in an onion bed. He was crying so hard his eyes were red, and the tears ran off the end of his nose as he ate his way down the onion rows. He ate, and he cried. But for all his tears, he sang, Ah, sweet onions. Ah, my dears, I love you. I do, and you love me. But you make me as sad as a man can be. A poem about onions. The cultured girl. She was so she was so aesthetic and cultured. Just doted on Wagner and Gluck and claimed that perfection existed in some foreign English bred duke. She raved over Browning and Huxley and Tyndall and Darwin and Jane and talked about flora and fauna and many things I can't explain. Of Madame Blavatsky, the occult, theosophy, art, and then she spoke of the Cuniad Sibyl and Venus de Medici and spoke of the why and the wherefore and longed for the whither and hence. And she said, Eclep, yip, yap, and yonder were used in the alliterative sense. Well, I sat like a fool, dumbfounded, and wondered what she didn't know. Twas, twas so when I bade her good evening and I thought it season to go. I passed her house yesterday evening. I don't know, but it seemed to me she was chasing around in the kitchen and getting things ready for tea. I heard her sweet voice calling, Mother! It was then that I felt quite abashed, for she yelled, How shall I fix the taters? Fried, lionized, baked, boiled, or mashed? Means nothing to me. Nothing. Because I, 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 I generally... I generally... Uh, 
steer clear of cultured girls. So that would just be... <laughs> yes, at the end of the garden, across the litter of weeds and grass cuttings, the pumpkin spreads its coarse, bristled, hollow-stemmed lines, erupting in great leaves above flowers, the knobbly and prominent stigmas of which are like fuses waiting to be set by bees. When, like a string of yellow mines across the garden, the pumpkins will smolder and swell, drawing the combustion from the sun to make their own. At night, I lie, waiting for detonation, half expecting to find the garden cratered like a moon. That was nice. Yes. There are more than a hundred Turkish poems about eggplant. I would like to give you all of them. If you scoop out every seed, you can read me backwards like an Arabic book. Look. The eggplant. Egg-shaped and as shiny as if freshly laid, you are a melancholy fruit. Salamum malangena. Every animal is sad after eggplant. <laughs> I never thought of the eggplant as sad, did you? Melancholy. Well, I've got one here, though, that I must I must read to you because it is about something that uh, you perhaps know about. Just hang in there. We'll see. It's about macaroni. You never imagine a poem about macaroni. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I noticed going through this that uh, Jonathan Swift wrote a lot of stuff about food, which would have surprised me. Angry man. I don't see it. Yep. <laughs> Some of these poems, uh, just reading them, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to read all of them to you, but a lot of them are so, so beautifully typographically set that you have to enjoy them from the from the way they look. Listen to this one. Here's a here's a romantic one called Gracious Living. When we dine by romantic candlelight, the cockroaches are deceived. They think night has fallen and come out only to be crushed by my paper napkin. Gracious living. <laughs> Sounds like New York, doesn't it? By the way, that was written by a New Yorker. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I was just looking at this thing. I was, I was going to read some stuff out of this, but... Really, I, I must say, Bill, you've really given us a, 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 a bad turn here because your book, for, for one time, you failed to put in a decent, uh, workable index. And any book of poetry without an index is, a, is a, almost useless. Would you agree? Um, he has a kind of an index, but the index doesn't really work. Uh, now, like here, he's got under C, uh, Soup and C, Part 4. Uh, and I looked under Soup and C, and I can't find the the thing that's under Soup and C, which, you know, speaking of... of uh, do you ever know a poet? You ever, I mean, a working poet. A guy that worked uh, doing nothing but uh, dealing in poetry. And, uh, you, you, you know, you tend to think that a poet, a uh, working poet, would be a very, uh, would be a very uh, esoteric guy. We tend to think of poets in terms of uh, of uh, aesthetics, you know, a very aesthetic person. 
And yet I find that many people, that includes poets, are almost exactly the opposite of the product that they create. In short, I, I met a guy one day who turned out nothing but disposable, throwaway, plastic glasses. Now, you know, little plastic glasses. I'm not talking about the, the, uh, the nice, beautiful, clear ones. I'm talking about the little chunky, red plastic glasses, cheapy things. You know, they just turn them out for, uh, for picnics and stuff like that. And this guy had a collection of 17th century Persian art. <laughs> he sat around. He sat around and, and, and read Persian poetry by the hour. He was the way you would think of a poet as being. I mean, he's really like that. You know, he, he lived in a, in a house of perfumed air, and uh, he was very cultured and, and only, only dealt with people uh, all the time that were cultured. But himself, no way. On the other hand, one of the biggest slobs I've ever met in my life, a guy I've known for a long time, a total pure slob, is an internationally known poet. Spends his time walking around, uh, sniping cigar butts. He... Uh, he, uh, you know, eats in bad restaurants in Broadway, smells of garlic continually. Uh, I don't think he's... You know, yeah, <laughs> he looks exactly like the way you would think, uh, a, you know, a, a real uh, dock walloper would look. And yet, he's an internationally known poet. Now, would you please give me a little uh, cheap music? I have a, a little friendly piece of, uh, yeah, a little poetry to hear. It's called The Clam. You may leave the clam on the ocean floor. It's all the same to the clam. For a hundred thousand years or more, it's all the same to the clam. You may carry him home in a gunny sack and pour Tabasco on his back and use him for a midnight snack. It's all the same to the clam. You may carry him round to bring you luck. It's all the same to the clam. Or use him for a hockey puck all the same to the clam. You may dress him in the latest style or pry him open with a file. The clam will neither frown nor smile. It's all the same to the clam. You may call him Bob or Fran or Nell. It's all the same to the clam. Or make an ashtray from his shell. It's all the same to the clam. You may take him riding on the train or leave him sitting in the rain. You'll never hear the clam complain. It's all the same to the clam. So the world may stop, or the world may spin. It's all the same to the clam. Or the sky may come a-falling in. It's all the same to the clam. And man may sing his endless songs of wronging rights and righting wrongs. The clam just sets and gets along. It's all the same to the clam. <laughs> Did you like that? <laughs> Well, that's my friend. That's Shelley Silverstein. That's the kind of trivia that he works. Uh, you know, it's funny about about reading books of poetry. Uh, thank you, thank you. You know, I, I poetry comes in many different forms, and and when you talk about poetry, you generally talk about classical poetry, and I've never found classical poetry meaning much to me but to me this is this is a piece of poetry in a curious sort of uh, uh, human way and and there I suppose is in human poetry did you see the note out of France just before Christmas just a little note about houses 
It's uh, from a place called Besancon, France. Archaeologists, two weeks ago, discovered, uh, they just dug them up, eight well-preserved wooden houses under 15 feet of mud that are probably 5,000 years old. Now think about it. Did you hear what I just said, Bill? I don't think you heard it. All right. <laughs> That's what I mean. Eight, they discovered eight houses in France buried under 15 feet of mud. But the houses are 5,000 years old. <laughs> now, now, wait a minute. They, uh, they, they were built on stilts. See, apparently there had been a lake there at one time uh, in this area. And they can tell by the mud and all that stuff. And these houses were built up on stilts. And they were, they were at least 5,000 years old, roughly 3,000 years before Christ. The houses are made of precisely tooled oak with hallways, with rooms, and with conduits in the roof, like chimneys. They were all oriented in the same direction. They all faced the same direction. They, uh, the least exposed wall to the north and the doorways all faced south. And the official said that tools bones and other objects found in the little spaces between the houses, like lanes, like little sidewalks between the houses, suggested that the inhabitants knew about stock breeding and had already domesticated the dog. They had pets 5,000 years ago. Now, now I'm thinking of that house they laying there in the mud for 5,000 years, and it's got, the, it's got tools and utensils and stuff like that. Well, the guy living in that house obviously would have had no concept of the idea that 5,000 years from then, people would dig it up. Of course, he could have no concept of us, the kind of people we are. Just absolutely inconceivable to him. Well, I submit that the same is true of us. Because time will pass. That's a hard thing to accept, but it will. Time will pass. And uh, there will be uh, 5,000 years will go under the bridge or over the dam. Now, that follows, of course, that when 5,000 years pass, that not one single person alive today will be around then. No way. You agree to that, Bill, or do you think that there's some doubt in your case due to the fact that you're doing them push-ups and all that, huh? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're jogging a lot. Well, <laughs> this is a, a basic desire of all mankind, of course, to somehow magically be the only one in his neighborhood that lives forever. But uh, nevertheless, yeah, yes, it's a, in your case, I think it is possible, Bill. It is. See, because they say that if you, if you, if you live a life of total uh, serenity, in other words, never let an idea ripple your brain, uh, you will possibly make it <laughs> like the clam. <laughs> the world come, the world goes, and Bill remains. It's all the same. Kingdoms topple, cabinets crumble. But uh, I, I say, though, that, that can you look around your house now? Can you imagine your house, some guy digging around? And they didn't know. You know, there must have been thousands of other houses, but they picked these eight. These are the only ones that lasted. And uh, who knows why? I mean, just uh, the luck of the draw. It is conceivable that your house could last for. 8,000 years. Your particular room. And you, your house, your pad could be a great find. 
a tremendous archaeological find 5,000, 8,000 years from now. And we can't comprehend the kind of people that will be around at that time or what they will think or what their, you know, what kind of technology they have or any, if they have any at all. What? You know, who knows? But uh, I could see them digging down through endless uh, yards of uh, Jersey shale. You know, they, they would, by that time, they would call it the Jersey littoral. And uh, there you are, you know, you're squatting in your pad out there in South Plainfield, and they, they dig down through the mud, and they start tapping away at the roof, see? And here they are, they're, they're tapping at the top of your house. They clear the mud away, and they, there they, they discover it, perfectly preserved, your pad. Now, the, the only thing that I would like to suggest is you want to give posterity a good impression, don't you? You don't want to... You don't want to have your house all messed up, looking like a pig pen. I mean, you realize that, that you could be the one that they're, that they're going to judge the entire civilization on. And if they dig your place up and you're knee-deep in beer cans and old Rheingold bottles and, and uh, you know, old newspapers all over the place, cigar butts, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, a whole bunch of old dirty dish rags in the kitchen, dishes in the sink, uh, you know, with old petrified egg and crud. I Did I ever tell you about the... the the, the slob I once knew who uh, who moved in this apartment and to, total slob type person and uh, but by the way never looked like a slob on the outside every, every, everything looked great when you were around with this this person out I will not even tell you the sex of it <laughs> it uh, when you're out walking around you just you know the person is very very uh, well dressed and everything but their house became slowly uninhabitable and it began in the kitchen and so within about a month, there were so many dishes piled up, you know, old paper plates and empty tin cans and stuff in the sink that gradually this person withdrew from the kitchen until finally just completely locked the door, never used the kitchen. The kitchen was loaded right to the ceiling with just indescribable filth. <laughs> and then gradually it began to fill up the next room. Well, after, you know, it was only two and a half room apartment. Uh, after a couple of, you know, a couple of years of that, it was obvious that this person was living in one small corner of the apartment, at which point the lease was up. Two years, and then that person would move out and uh, move across town and start it all over again. And uh, <laughs> I'm just telling you that, that uh, there are ways to live, friends, that uh, boggle the imagination, that are completely beyond your ken. Now, you don't want to have posterity come along later and, and you know, tag the entire 20th century to with, with the way you live. So why don't you straighten up tonight? You don't know. The Ice Age may hit before night. <laughs> you know, before tomorrow morning. <laughs> straighten up the pad. Empty the ashtrays. <laughs> by the way, did you, did you know that they now feel that it's definite we are in the middle of the beginning of a new Ice Age? That's right. Just thought you ought to know. Closer than you think. This is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith on the news.